the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron and Ewan Levick. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, we'll be chatting with Marcus Hellyer about the federal government budget and its impacts on defence. Marcus, welcome back to the show. Hello, great to be here. Excellent. It's great to have you back. And uh, for this episode, I'm also joined once again by Ewan Levick, publisher at ADM Group. Ewan, how are you doing today? I'm good, Grant. Good to be back. Excellent. Over to you, Ewan, to kick things off. So we'll get the big question out of the way first. Does the federal budget support the recommendations of the Defence Strategic Review? Well, there's two answers to that. The, the first one is the simple one, which is no. The, the longer answer is, well, since it's not entirely clear what the detailed recommendations of the DSR are, it's really hard to know how they align. What I would say, however, is that what we've seen of the, the public DSR tends to exacerbate some of the pressures that were already on the defence budget before the review started, and I think uh, has is making the situation worse. So broadly speaking, the situation already was that, yes, the defence budget is growing, uh, but it is, is growing at a rate set by the previous government all the way back in 2016. So we still have a funding line uh, today and onwards for the next four years that was set back in 2016 when the world was a different place. And the problem was is that the government and Defence Department were trying to cram too much stuff into that funding envelope and it just didn't really work. My friend and colleague Michael Shoebridge described it in the lead-up to the DSR as an exploding suitcase you know, that so that Smith and Houston were going to come in and this thing was just going to blow up in their faces because there's just so much crammed into it. From what I've seen, we've actually crammed even more into that suitcase without making the suitcase any bigger. So we can explore that uh, during the podcast, what those, you know, challenges are. But from what I've seen, the, the situation has actually gotten worse. Yeah, I've seen you over the last few years talking about how sustainment is just growing exponentially and becoming more and more of the budget. So I'm not seeing anything that says that's changing. Are you? No. So, you know, one of the the hard truths of defence capability and the relationship between capability and cost is that every new system costs more, not just to buy, but also to operate. So we sort of have this mythical bathtub curve that people talk about. So when capabilities come in, you know, they bring costs down and as they age, they get more and more expensive. And so you've got to replace them with something newer, which will be cheaper. Well, it doesn't really work like that. That's because every new system uh, has more capability. So it's bigger, has more systems, more processing power, more of everything, and so it simply costs more. And so what we're seeing now is Defence is acquiring a bunch of systems that are either completely new, so they're not replacing anything, it's just an entirely new sustainment cost, or they're replacing like for like, but the new like is much, much bigger and therefore much more expensive than the old like. And, you know, classic example, uh, the Hunter-class frigates, should we ever actually get any, uh, you know, they're about three times the size of the frigates they're replacing. 
with uh, about four times as many vertical launch cells and, you know, so just more costs. And, you know, the mother of all cases is, of course, SSNs where we're replacing six conventional boats, which I will say are already the most expensive uh, sustainment um, cost in defence, but we're going with something that are uh, going to eight nuclear submarines. And, you know, my back of the fag packet guesstimate is it's got to be at least four times as much to operate those, uh, the, the SSNs, a minimum. And, you know, we don't even really know what sort of the broader costs associated with being a, you know, a, a nuclear navy and a, a responsible nuclear operator, uh, but, you know, minimum four times as much and, and probably more. But those are only the two most compelling examples, but, you know, it, it permeates the ADF. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge, I think, for the ADF to work out how it's going to afford to sustain all of those new capabilities. Well, Marcus, it sounds... Overall, like it's not very good news. Like in summary, we're doing a whole lot more with the same amount of money, and that's a recipe for disaster. The DSR, there are there's sort of goodness in the DSR, so I don't want to be too critical. And I think one of the things that is is whether you call it good in and of itself or simply a recognition of reality is the move to to a focused force. So moving away from this so-called balance force where we had a bit of everything potentially to meet every conceivable contingency, uh, the DSR authors have said we need to move to a focused force. Well, what's it focused on? It's focused on essentially deterring and denying a great power adversary uh, in our near region and essentially imposing cost and risk on an adversary that wants to act against uh, Australia. And to do that, they've basically said you've got to prioritise because a, and they literally say a balanced force uh, model is not fit for purpose. So that's sending some pretty clear signals that you're going to have to make some hard prioritisation decisions. And the one that, of course, has attracted everybody's attention is the very significant reduction in scale in the infantry fighting vehicle program from 450 vehicles down to, I think, 129 vehicles. Now, that program had a budget between 18 and $27 billion, a lot of money. So maybe that will free up some, some cash. The problem, however, is that it doesn't really help you in the forward estimates, so the, the next four years. So the, the budget talks about the forward estimates, which is the, the starting financial year and the three after that. Now, cutting infantry fighting vehicles, I don't think is really going to help you in the next four years. Uh, similarly, cancelling the second regiment of self-propelled howitzers uh, isn't going to help you in the next four years either. You know, and some of the other ideas that people have been suggesting, say we cut the number of hunter-class frigates from the current nine at a cost of $45 billion, though I will say that the Australian National Audit Office in its recent report said that defence has recognised that $45 billion isn't enough, which to me is staggering and suggests we are fundamentally on the wrong path. But putting that aside, if you were to cut the number of hunter-class frigates, presumably we're not going to stop the first three because we actually need some capability and the first one isn't coming until about 2032 
anyway. So you don't really want to push them back. So you're talking about cutting the last three. Well, that may save you some money, but it's not going to save you any money probably until about 2040, you know, because that's when the cash flow for those last three frigates is going to start. And so this, I think, is the challenge uh, facing defence at the moment is the DSR, you know, has said do stuff faster. It wants, it's sort of got this three-phase approach. So the, the next two years are the most urgent one, so what they're calling an enhanced force in being. And then the, the beyond that to the end of the decade is sort of this objective force. And then beyond that, we've got Nirvana. We've got the Nirvana force of this perfectly integrated force. And, you know, they want defence to do a lot more in those first two time zones. The problem is, is they haven't really done anything to free up any cash in that period. And there's no more money in the Ford estimate. So the budget papers are very clear about that. Is it is still that same 2016 funding trajectory. So, you know, when you get to the end of the Ford estimates, uh, we'll be in 2027. So in more than 10 years, that funding model will not have changed, uh, despite all the things going on in the world. Now, the one sort of hint of some light at the end of the tunnel is buried in the budget papers is this sort of odd little kind of reference to a contingency fund where the government is has sort of put aside some money uh, in the back end of the decade after the Ford estimates, uh, which Defence might be able to get to use perhaps if we if it actually comes through. And that amount seems to be about $30 billion. That's a figure that actually defence officials have used. But what does $30 billion actually get you? Well, the government, when it announced the SSN solution, the, the, the optimal pathway, uh, set out some costs. And it said that in the Ford estimates, the cost would be $9 billion dollars. The attack class that we're now not getting was going to be six, so there's a $3 billion gap in the Ford estimates. Over the decade, they said it was, uh, off the top of my head, I think somewhere between $55 and $60 billion for the SSN path. The attack class was going to be 30. So we're, we've essentially got a $25 to $30 billion gap between what the attack class was going to cost and the new path. So when you look at this hypothetical contingency fund buried in the budget papers, it seems to be coincidence. I don't know. Some people think there are no such things as coincidences, but it looks a lot like it will cover the additional cost of SSNs. Okay. And, and that's it. That's all you're going to get. So again, it doesn't really do much to to address the exploding suitcase other than sort of covering the additional cost of SSNs over the decade. Now, you said there's no real increase in funding, et cetera. We're just pegging at that 2%. But uh, we know that if we're going to support SSNs and things like that, we've got to build our industry now. We've got to be doing everything we need. Same with uh, hypersonics, quantum cyber. We've got to be investing now to be ready to look after it. Did you see anything in the budget that says, oh, we're putting some money? I mean, they, they took money away from um, space launch systems and things like that and spaceports, but that's supposed to be something we're really important for for space. Have you seen anything that says that they're investing in the infrastructure we need? Well, 
Okay, so one thing we ha we have to bear in mind is that the portfolio budget statements are not written for normal people like you and me. Well, moderately normal, speaking of myself. So they they are written by accountants for other accountants to meet an accounting standard. So the kinds of quite rational questions which you're posing aren't actually answered by documents like the portfolio budget statements, like trying to get a good sense of what actually is defence spending money on in a relatively granular way is very hard to answer from the portfolio budget statements. Um, and so you sort of have to reconstruct a lot of this stuff. So that very reasonable question of what are we actually spending to implement AUKUS Pillar 2? So those eight lines of advanced technologies, you know, such as hypersonics and AI and quantum and undersea warfare, uh, you, there is no line in the portfolio budget statements called AUKUS Pillar 2, and also there's no lines for those individual um, lines of effort in there. So it's a little hard to say. Uh, we do know it, it, you can sort of find the $9 billion for SSNs. So actually, you might refer, remember the government recently put out an announcement saying it was set, setting up a new entity, the Australian Submarine Agency, which would be a an agency within the defence portfolio, but separate from the department. So I guess analogous to the Australian Signals Directorate, which is a separate agency within the defence portfolio. It's done that for submarines, and so in the portfolio budget statements, there is a, a, a program in there, and you, you sort of you can find the $9 billion there. Interestingly, in, in one of those years, I think it's 25, 26, there's just this mysterious kind of $3 billion. You know, so if I was a senator at Senate Estimates, I'd be saying, what's that mysterious $3 billion spike for? And one assumes that that is the money that we are essentially handing over to the US and to the UK for them to start increasing their submarine production capability. But in terms of trying to find money going on hypersonics or, or quantum, things like that, you're not going to find it in the portfolio budget statements. Marcus, I'll, I'll say it was very generous to call Grant normal. But <laughs> <laughs> um, previously, we've had defence spending pegged at 2% of GDP. You mentioned before, you know, we're aiming for this nirvana of a focused force at some point in the 2030s or 40s. If you were to be laying out the eightfold path to achieving that nirvana, Mm -hmm. what percent of GDP would we realistically need to be spending? Okay. So first of all, I will just, you know, uh, call you out on that a little. So the, the defence budget is not pegged at any percentage of GDP. So the 2016 white paper and the 2020 defence strategic update were both very explicit in saying that the, the then government was not going to peg spending at any particular percentage of GDP. What it did say in 2016 is that by 2019-20, defence spending would hit 2% of GDP, but it didn't tie it to that. Um, and the reason for that, of course, is if GDP goes up, um, then your defence spending has to go up if, if it, they're tied. And similarly, if it goes down, uh, your defence spending will go down, and that makes it very hard to plan in defence if all of a sudden, you know, your budget is cut. So 
they're, they're not linked. It just so happens that 2% seems to be the kind of shorthand for what relatively serious countries spend on defence. So it's sort of the benchmark that NATO had set itself. Uh, of course, as Donald Trump rather brutally reminded them, not many of them had actually got there. Um, and then the Ukraine war also then reminded European countries they hadn't actually gotten there. And so now they're all saying, well, we, we really, really are going to get there. Um, even Germany, who was one of the biggest offenders, you know, they were at about 1.4%. And in fact, the difference between what Germany was spending and, and 2% of GDP was roughly equivalent to the Australian defence budget, <laughs> you know, and we're the 12th biggest budget in the world. So, you know, they were uh, slackers in this regard. And even Japan, who uh, have been one of the biggest slackers at spending around 1% um, in, and, and now saying they're going to do 2% though it remains to be seen whether they get there. So anyway, we're at, we're at about 2%. We've actually fallen below because GDP has done so well in the last couple of years. That's partly driven by inflation. Um, so GDP is doing spectacularly well. The defence budget is still sort of set by that 2016 line. Uh, so we've actually fallen below uh, 2%. And in fact, in 22-23, according to the budget papers, we're going to end up at about a little bit over 1.9%. Ironically, even though the defence funding hasn't changed at all, you know, the defence has been getting the money set out in that 2016 white paper. And so that's why pegging numbers to 2% of GDP, I think, is not particularly helpful. That said, I will try and answer your question of what percentage should we be paying what I'll, of course, you know, everybody looks at this says, well, you shouldn't peg it to GDP. You need to be spending what is required to, to preserve your, your security and to pre help preserve broader stability in the region. Of course, there's no real calculus for actually determining what that is. But my, what I generally say is, you know, we, we have enjoyed unparalleled peace and prosperity for less than 2% of GDP. It's been, you know, a bargain really, and with, that has been underpinned by US defence spending. Look, I'm, I know, you know, the alliance is a, is a hot topic, but I think, you know, the US power has preserved peace and, and prosperity in the broader Indo-Pacific. Now, the average American is spending 3 to 3.5% 3 of GDP. And so the Americans are subsidising everybody else's security. And guess what? They're getting a little sick of it, right? And so the US is expecting its friends and allies to do more. And the US's friends and allies are realising that they are going to have to do more because the US is tapped out and we can no longer rely on the US to guarantee our security at all times in all circumstances. Ultimately, that's what AUKUS is about, okay? So previously, the US had never offered to provide us with nuclear submarines. You know, if we'd even thought about asking, you know, the, we realised it wasn't going to happen and the US weren't going to do it. The world has fundamentally changed, so that technology is now available to us, but of course we have to 
pay for it. You know, and that's what, you know, that is just one of those manifestations across the Indo-Pacific of uh, US friends and our allies doing more. So I mentioned Japan going from 1% to 2% of GDP. You know, even relatively uh, poorer countries such as the Philippines are trying to step up their game. So we're not alone. We are alone in that we're the only ones who have been offered SSNs, but that's simply a a manifestation of a, a broader trend. But I do think if we want SSNs, if we want a fifth generation Air Force, if we want deep magazines of guided weapons, some of which will be produced here, if we want amphibious capabilities that can project our army, you know, uh, the list goes on. I don't think you're going to get that for 2% of GDP. It's just not possible. We're, we're seeing that squeeze already. Now, is the magic number 2.5%? Is it 3%? Um you know, you, we can argue about that. I think by moving to a focus force, I think that's an attempt on the part of the DSR and the government to reduce the cost, okay? So you focus on certain things and cut away other things. That's a way of reducing cost. Um, but you certainly, even a focus force with SSNs, you're not going to get for 2% of GDP. i just note, by the way, that when you look historically during the Cold War, we spent at times considerably more than 2% of GDP. Even, um, you know, outside of, say, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, we were spending considerably more than 2% of GDP and sometimes upwards of 3% of GDP. So if you compare our current strategic circumstances, is are, are they similar to the Cold War? Are they more benign than the Cold War or are they more risky and uncertain than the Cold War? I would say we're in the latter category, which to me would suggest you're going to have to spend, you know, that at least that level of spending if you want to, you know, um, reduce risk. So we're going to need more funds to be able to do all the things that we're wanting. Uh, maybe some of it, as you suggested, comes from cutting stuff out of the uh, existing defence budget to repurpose it within that bucket. But they're going to need even more than that to do everything. So where do you think these funds are going to come from? Uh, you know, we're sustaining a lot, we're developing a lot, but there's going to be all these missiles, as you said. That we haven't even got to the AUKUS, the subs yet. Mm-hmm. Where, where can they cut? What's going to happen? What do you think? Uh, look, that is the $64,000 question. Uh, I think those are probably the the classified bits of the DSR where the the august men who did it have made some recommendations on on how to do that. But as I said, some of the things they've uh, they recommended and that the government has accepted, like reducing IFEs and the second blob of howitzers, ain't going to help you in the forward estimates. So we do know, you know, there's lists floating around of some other. Uh, measures that have been proposed. So, you know, defence's traditional way of dealing with a lack of funding is, you know, it will shrink projects, so reduce the scope, delay projects, um, but that simply pushes the the issue downstream, kicks the can down the road. That's why we've still got M113s in service, even though we've known, you know, it's no secret they're obsolete. We didn't just realise that today. You know, we've known for 20 years they're essentially obsolete. 
or, or cancelling and defence hates cancelling projects, you know, and fair enough. I mean, there's a good reason why they're in the investment program in the first place. So, you know, and, and generally that they have a champion. So those are your three options because it's hard to get rid of people. It's really, really bad optics about reducing the number of people, um, particularly when defence is already struggling to hit its recruiting targets, massively missing, and we can talk about that. And it's hard to cut sustainment budgets, again, because if, if war happens in the next few years, we're going with the force we have now. So if you stop using that force, you're reducing training, you know, you're reducing readiness, you know, and so it impacts the force you have. So you, you haven't got a lot of options, so you either have to shrink, delay, or cancel uh, existing projects. Now, there's two kinds of projects from a, a, a money perspective. There are approved projects and unapproved projects. So approved projects are the ones that the government has given second pass approval to. So defence can enter into contract and industry can actually start delivering. The other kind are the unapproved projects. So those are the ones that are sitting in the investment plan, you know, slowly being developed, you know, going Defence doing its endless studies, you know, doing its going out to tender, doing its endless tender evaluation cycle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and those are the unapproved projects. Generally, you know, if defence has to find some money, it will hit the unapproved projects. Those tend to be the ones that get delayed or, or shrunk. The problem is, is those projects, there's not a lot of money attached to those projects in the next few years. Why? Because they take time to ramp up. So you're not going to budget a lot of money for something that's not going to be approved and ramp up and deliver in the next few years. So most of the money in the acquisition program is in your approved projects, those things that are already delivering. So if you're trying to find a lot of cash in the next few years, those are the things you're going to have to look at. And that means real pain because you're you're in contract, you know, production lines have been set up, things are being delivered. So it's a really difficult space. You know, you it's it's one thing to sort of hit um, the infantry fighting vehicle program. And you know, obviously that will cause pain for Hanwa or Rheinmetall and their Australian planned Australian subcon contractors, but no actual contracts had been set up. If you start hitting approved projects, you're, you're hitting things that are in production with approved contracts and, and workers and and so, but it's really hard to see how defence can say, can free up lots of cash without going after approved projects. And so if I was in industry, I'd be very nervous. I would be very nervous. Now, uh, another thing that was very clear in the portfolio budget statements is it, is it says this reflects the program before the DSR was done. Because Defence only got the DSR, you know, a couple of months before the budget came out. So there was no way for Defence to flow the recommendations of the DSR through their in investment program to sort of work out which programs to, to, to reduce, delay or cut. So essentially, the PBS reflects a world that's already overtaken by events. So once defence's planning catches up with the DSR, there'll be a whole bunch of flow-on effects, you know, and so that's why if I, if I was in industry, I'd be getting pretty nervous at this point because I don't think you can take anything for granted, even things that are in 
contract. So we had a portfolio budget statement that was essentially dead straight out of the water because it was designed before the before the defense strategic review came out. We also have a defense strategic review that has a strong focus on FMS, purchases for new equipment and speed. As you've just said, none of this is good news for industry, right? Yes. So a couple of things. So even though I've said that the defence funding line is the same as the one that was set out in the 2016 white paper, that is a funding line that is growing in real terms. And a lot of that growth is going into the acquisition program. So, you know, defence's acquisition spending, both historically and its uh, forecast budget, have shown real growth. Okay, so a lot of money is going out the door. And so, you know, we shouldn't um, ignore that. You know, a lot the government is spending a lot of money on defence capability and stuff is being delivered. However, defence has systematically missed its capital spending targets. Okay, we can go all the way back to the, the white paper and year on year, you know, defence's spending targets in its acquisition program have, have been missed. So what does that mean? Well, one is that it's, it's hard to ramp up uh, industry. It also means that if, if you've got a way to spend money, I think defence is going to grab it with both hands. Now, some of the examples of that have been additional purchases of C-17s and P-8s. You know, it's like if, if, if you've got a way to spend money quickly, defence is going to be open to it. Generally, however, that means, um, you know, going to a large existing production line, such as one owned by our friends in the US, because, you know, they, they may just happen to have a few aircraft sitting around. And um, so I, I do think there is a risk for Australian industry that, you know, the, the other sort of interesting term in the DSR was this minimum viable capability line and i think that's also gotten australian industry a little worried that you know that that's license for defense to go to the us and buy whatever the us has even if it doesn't quite meet our requirements it's close enough you know the flip side of that however what i would say is that that also gives license for defense to go to australian industry and say well what you've got is looks pretty good it may not meet our requirements 100%, but we're no longer interested in that last 10 or 20% of capability. What you've got is good enough. So I think it actually puts the onus on defence to actually take a really good look at Australian industry. And if you're in Australian industry and you can deliver quickly, then you've actually got something to offer. Now, of course, we all know about defence is risk aversion, and so it means defence has to, you know, re-examine its, its risk appetite. But one of the good things for me in the DSR is I think it's really an essay that is sort of telling defence to re-examine its risk appetite and to be more open to risk, but also, you know, not to seek perfection. You know, there's a number of places in, in the DSR where it looks at existing defence projects and goes, you just after perfection, you know, scale back your requirements and accept something a bit more realistic. And to me, that really offers um, hope for a Australian industry. So it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag there, you know, and um, 
I'm a big supporter of Australian industry. You know, I'm doing some work with a great um, Melbourne SME at the moment who I think are exactly the kind of company that Defence should be working with because they can actually deliver quickly and they are the embodiment of that small, the smart and the many, you know, that, you know, by focusing on, on small autonomous systems, you can actually deliver quickly. But you can see that right across, you know, Australian defence industries. So, but it does take, you know, mean defence has to kind of shift its vision a little from, you know, that that perfect thing that will be delivered in 20 years' time by some international prime and seeing what Australian industry can do now. And I think good things can actually come out of that. Well, that's that's very good to hear for industry. It's uh, Everyone's been running a little scared because of the focus on FMS. But you mentioned earlier, let's come back to staffing. And Defence are already having trouble staffing their current platforms, let alone all these new ones they're putting in. And the, the AUKUS subs are going to need more people than a Collins and they can't even staff their Collins. So how do you see this working out? Do you think they're going to push more of sustainment below the line or what do you think is going to happen there? Well, I think definitely on the sustainment side of things, a lot of it is already behind below the line and that is going to continue. So you might recall that just recently the government put out its audit of uh, APS external workforce that it, it did a, a promise before the election it was going to do that. It's put out that report so we can see which agency is employing how many external workers. Uh, not surprisingly, Defence is the biggest one there, but the bulk of its 35,000 roughly external workforce are outsourced service providers, you know, and those range from people making meals on bases to doing maintenance on ADF platforms. So, and those I, I think are generally you, you don't want people, uniform people doing. On the whole, you don't need uh, uniform people doing that. You know, as long as you've still got enough in-house capability to sustain your systems when you deploy, you don't need everybody on a spanner or on a spatula being uh, an ADF person. But I think that will that number will continue to grow. I don't just don't really see any way around that. Now, where there could be a, a change in trajectory is in contractors. So at the moment, Defence has about 8,300 contractors, according to the low, latest figures that the government's published. And that number has grown dramatically over the last few years, you know, from around 4,000. And Defence's definition of a contractor is somebody who is essentially doing the same job as an ADF or APS person. And those numbers have blown out widely. Why? Because Defence's APS workforce was very strictly regulated. Um, both the, the previous government and the Labor government before that uh, reduced APS numbers. At the same time, Defence's acquisition program was going dramatically. So if you want to spend that huge acquisition uh, pot of gold, you need people to do it. So the current government has said, well, we'd like to bring some of that back in-house. It's going to be hard to do, I think. You sort of now have a, a generation of people who are used to getting you know, contractor salaries, not APS salaries. So it's going to be hard to turn that around. And it's always very easy for oppositions, the opposition parties to point to growing APS numbers and say, look, it's all blowing blowing out again. So 
you know, I think there might be a slight turnaround there, but I don't think we're going to see a fundamental U-turn. Regardless, the problem is everybody's after the same people. You know, everybody's after project managers. Everybody's after systems engineers. Everybody's after cost estimators. You know, so whether you're the public service, whether you want, you know, above the line people running projects or below the line people delivering projects, whether it's in industry, we're all after the same people. So it's a, a pretty, uh, I don't want to say dire, I don't want to get too pessimistic, but it's a challenging situation. And that's just on kind of the delivery side of things. Grant, as you mentioned, in the ADF side, the uniform side of things, it's pretty uh, gloomy there. So in the seven years since the 2016 white paper, the ADF, in a period essentially of, you know, I would say unlimited resources, you know, if you know, everybody's throwing money at trying to recruit ADF people, uh, the, the ADF has grown in total by 400 over seven years, okay, that so do the math. It's growing by about 60 a year, yet it needs to grow by over 20,000. And that's just to operate the planned force in the current acquisition program. So, again, do the math. What does that work out? Like 300 years or something until we, we recruit all of them? So, look, I know, you know, defence goes, it's, it's thinking is that, well, there's swings and roundabouts. We'll have an economic downturn. People will be looking for a job and they'll join the ADF. Yeah, maybe, it, you know, or, well, when, you know, the war starts, people will enlist. But it's pretty hard to train SSN captains overnight, you know. So you, you may be able to sort of quickly recruit some kinds of people, but other people it will take years and years to recruit. So, you know, I, when I look at this, I go, can we continue with the current mindset, which is essentially if you build it, they will come. You know, we'll get these submarines and people will be really excited to join. Now, I'm not sure that's the case because at the moment we're having trouble finding people who are willing to sit in a submarine underwater for two months I'm not sure they're going to be hugely wrapped around sitting in a submarine for six months just because it has a reactor on the back of it as opposed to a, a diesel engine. I don't know. But anyway, we can keep going with that mindset or you can sort of go, all right, we're actually going to design the ADF around a, an achievable number of people. And that will mean picking capabilities that deliver maximum firepower with the minimum number of people. So it's a slightly different way of looking at it. But my sense is we've got to do something because um, ADF numbers as a percentage of the population have been falling, you know, over, over time. Um, and, you know, th that trajectory has, despite a lot of really good work by a lot of really talented, serious people in defence, we haven't turned that trajectory around. Well, Marcus, that has been an excellent conversation as ever. So I'd just like to thank you very much for coming and joining you and I and having this great chat. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. And you and of course, thanks once again for joining me here. Thanks, Grant. Thanks, Marcus. That was brilliant. 
Well, of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can follow this podcast in your favorite podcatcher to ensure you get every episode as they're released. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.